All right, we are back. And uh, I do want to note that um, the former American Secretary of State and professional liar, Colin Powell, is appearing in Sacramento on the 22nd. I was not planning to attend, having had tickets for Garrison Keillor, but uh, now that Garrison's not coming, I'm still not going. If, if you're planning to go, dear listener, please see if you can't ask him the question of whether he's now willing to apologize to the American public for misleading them about weapons of mass destruction. Being a stupid man is not one of his shortcomings, so he knew when he told the United Nations that... Uh, there, were all, there was all this evidence of weapons of mass destruction that it just wasn't so. But certain folks wanted to go to war, and he helped. By the way, if you do go, please send us an email to info at radioparallax.com. I'm especially keen to know whether people in the audience are still buying what he's peddling. Speaking of former Bush administration weasels... All this noise they're making about putting Dick Cheney and others on trial for, uh, for some of their malfeasance eh, seems to be a lot of hot air. At the present time, no higher-ups have still been fingered for any kind of legal action, although there's some rumblings about some of the lower-level people who will no doubt be branded bad apples. Commenting about whether they're in America the need to reform health care or fix the economy or battle climate change uh, takes precedent over... Uh, over uh, holding Bush administration officials' feet to the fire. Well, according to Austria's Der Standard, that's a false choice. These current political needs of the Obama administration do not excuse the U.S. from following international law. Noted Der Standard, American democracy will suffer if Americans fail to condemn the Bush administration's reckless willingness to toss aside the rule of law. If Bush officials suffer no consequences for their usurpation of power, what's to stop another administration from doing the same thing in the future? Well, good question. We agree. We would like to also refer you to our archives where we spoke with Vincent Bugliosi, the notable author and former district attorney of Los Angeles, who outlined how it was that any district attorney in any congressional district in this country could put George W. Bush on trial for murder. The only need is for someone to have died in that person's congressional district, I believe, although I'm a little vague in the details, not being a lawyer myself, but uh, Bugliosi made a compelling case, and we'd like to refer you back to it, um, particularly if you're a person with legal authority. Speaking of uh, untoward legal authority, it's been noted that the police in Russia were given rights this summer to open anyone's mail without a court order. <laughs> Big surprise. The Kremlin had announced in July that agents of the Interior Ministry, the Federal Security Service, the Federal Bodyguard Service, the Foreign Intelligence Service, Customs, and the Penal Service now all have the authority to open letters and inspect packages. It was noted that in announcing this new policy, the Ministry of Communications did not address any legal or privacy issues. I guess there's some small consolation in knowing that uh, in Russia... Uh, things still remain worse than they are here. Actually, speaking of rights, here's something that we could have probably used as our quote or quip or maybe even joke of the day in today's program. There's another item we've been sitting on since July. Down in Phoenix, it was noted that uh, gun owners with concealed weapons permits could now bring their guns into bars and restaurants thanks to legislation signed by Governor Jan Brewer. The bill allows bar patrons to carry concealed weapons if they have no criminal record and receive safety training. 
Supporters of this law called it a safety measure. Said Todd Ratner of the National Rifle Association, anytime law-abiding gun owners can carry firearms into more places, the safer the public is. It was noted in news reports that uh, Democratic State Senator Ken Cheriant, who coincidentally owns a Phoenix wine bar, respectfully disagreed. Said the state senator, all I know is that guns and liquor do not mix. Is it just me or does it strike you, dear listener, there's something odd about the fact that in this country, in places like in Arizona, people are now being encouraged to come armed to political rallies. Yes, apparently the National Rifle Association feels that we're all a bit safer if when the president attends a political rally, people in the audience have loaded firearms. We would remind you, of course, that during the Bush administration, people were arrested in political rallies for the content of their t-shirts. Wear the wrong t-shirt to a Bush rally, get arrested. But if you show up at an Obama rally with loaded firearms, you're exercising your constitutional rights. I think maybe some folks on the extreme right end of the political spectrum need to go back and take a look at the Constitution again. No, never mind. And since I'm in kind of a snarky mode, and I guess I am, we would like to point out that on October 9th of this year, another former Bush administration official, Condi Rice, another former Secretary of State, will be appearing at the Sacramento Convention Center's Perspective, billed as Sacramento's premier speakers forum. Apparently the theme of this event is an American experience. Success is waiting for all of us. Apparently, Condi Rice will be joined in the dais by Howie Long, sports analyst for Fox, Jane Bryant Quinn, who's billed as a personal finance expert and TV host, also Guy Kawasaki, billed as author-slash-entrepreneur. I think he wrote those books about his rich dad and his poor dad and what a jerk his poor dad was, and James Bradley, author of Flags of Our Fathers. I can't truly speak to the merits of this, uh, this perspective program, but I do suspect that uh, an appropriate quote might be something George M. Cohen once said, which is, many a bum show has been saved by the flag. Oh yeah, and if you're going to that one, dear listener, would you please make sure Condi Rice gets asked whether she's now willing to apologize to the American public for all the whoppers she told? Inquiring minds would like to know what the answer to that is. All right, let's let's get off the political here and move directly to the goofball file. But something else I want to thank the Week magazine for is their briefings section, which oftentimes uh, gives us rather succinct summary of something that, uh, well, can't be explained in a paragraph. The subject on the September 11th issue was vampires. The magazine asked the rhetorical question, they slink about at night, they suck your blood, they turn mortals into the living dead. Why are vampires so popular? Thought it was high time someone addressed this question. I've read exactly two vampire books. 
Bram Stoker's classic Dracula, which started all of this nonsense, and Anne Rice's interview with the vampire, which was admittedly was pretty good. But holy mackerel, we got vampire books, we got vampire movies, we got vampire TV shows. According to the magazine, vampires are big business. They're considered a bona fide cultural phenomenon. Apparently, novelist Stephen Meyer's Twilight series, which is about a vampire Edward Cullen, has sold 42 million copies since 2005. There's a film version out. It's grossed more than $382 million. The HBO vampire series True Blood is one of Cable's biggest hits. And then, of course, there's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, etc., etc., etc. So we thought this was worth exploring, and <laughs> we'll just quote from, uh, quote from the briefing. The question was asked, how did vampires become cultural icons? The answer was, the credit goes to an English doctor, John William Polidori. He wrote an 1819 short story, The Vampire. Until Polidori came along, vampires were depicted as bloated, smelly monsters, but... Apparently, Polidori drew upon one of his most famous patients, Lord Byron, to create Lord Ruthven, a sleek, aristocratic gentleman who moved in society's rarefied circles and had a mysterious magnetism, especially over women. In 1847, Scotsman James Malcolm Reimer added to the vampire lore with his pulp novel, Varney the Vampire. And now, as far as we know, that was not a vampire who kept saying, Hey, Vern! That was Jim Varney. Bad actor and not numbered among the undead. No, Jim Varney currently is legitimately dead. Anyway, apparently Ryder's corpse-like protagonist had fangs, superhuman strength, and the powers of hypnosis. But of course, it was 1897's Dracula by Bram Stoker that really brought uh, the modern vampire legend to, to the forefront. This itself is an interesting story. Apparently, Count Dracula was conceived by Abraham Brom Stoker about 1890. Stoker was an Irish civil servant and theater manager. According to legend, he had a nightmare after glutting himself on dressed crab at dinner. He began research that led to Dracula seven years later. And in doing so, in doing so, Bram Stoker created or popularized almost all of today's major vampire motifs. He used Transylvania, Romania as his launching point and posited that vampires emerge only at night and sleep by day in consecrated earth, adding that they are terrified of holy objects such as crucifixes and garlic, which is not so holy. But for some reason, vampires don't like it, darn it. Dracula's name derived from Dracul, the Romanian word for devil or dragon. And, uh, you know, we know the usual. He has no reflection in a mirror, but can transform himself into a bat and also a wolf. Oddly enough, uh, Dracula was not a bestseller. Bram Stoker's wid widow called it the second bathroom book, because apparently its royalties earned just about enough to pay for the new bathroom they put in their house. But uh, the briefing doesn't mention it, but uh, the play based on the book was apparently a huge sensation. And, of course, when Bela Lugosi, courtesy of Universal Pictures, uh, took the Dracula character onto the silver screen, well, well that was that. we were just sunk after that. I mean, we had, uh, we had all sorts of vampires to follow, including such low-budget movie classics as Billy the Kid Meets Dracula, I'm pretty sure along the way Abbott and Costello met Dracula a few times. And on TV we had a soap opera, Dark Shadows. 
featuring uh, vampire Barnabas Collins. I don't know. I've had just about enough of vampires. I don't know. We're going to have to bring Matt Perry back on the show to talk about uh, vampire movies. Nosferatu, you know, uh, the work of uh, Bela Lugosi. The 1987 teen vampire movie, The Lost Boys. There's a, there's a lot to say. Noted the week, the tagline for that movie, The Lost Boys, pretty much said it all. Sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, never die. It's fun to be a vampire. And you know what else is fun? Having a radio show where you could talk about stuff like this, which, frankly, really doesn't have much of a punchline. <laughs> But as always, we value your input. If anyone out there wants to take the pro-vampire viewpoint, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Speaking of the undead who rise from the grave, a lot of people are wondering, whatever happened to Sarah Palin? We have a correspondent, Dwayne, from Berkeley, who is, is very paranoid about the former Alaska governor and thinks she will be back. We did want to mention Palin because I forgot to note Exactly what she said during that speech when she resigned or announced she was resigning the, uh, the governorship. Eugene Robinson noted in the Washington Post that uh, Palin at the time cited persistent criticism of her family along with a series of ethics investigations uh, which had hamstrung her ability to govern and also left her with a half a million dollars in legal bills. But he noted that uh, most of her literally nonsensical reasons for leaving the office only cemented her image as a clueless flake. Apparently, Sarah Palin said that continuing to just plot along as governor would be the quitter's way out. Which, of course, implies that she's quitting because she's not a quitter. Adding, with something less than eloquence, it would be apathetic to just hunker down and go with the flow. Only dead fish go with the flow. And no, we don't see any logic in it either. But uh, we're pretty sure we haven't heard the last of Sarah Palin. All right, from the boneheaded file, we have this. Apparently, according, at least according to uh, the Sacramento Bee, U.S. cops are upset because Mexico is going easy on drug users. According to the article, stunned police on the U.S. side of the Mexican border say that the new law, which eliminates jail time for small amounts of marijuana, cocaine, and even heroin, LSD, and methamphetamine, contradicts President Felipe Calderon's drug war. Some fear it would make Mexico a destination for drug-fueled spring breaks and tourism. Would become? The article admits that tens of thousands of American college students flock to Cancun and Acapulco each year to party at beachside discos offering wet t-shirt contests and all-you-can-drink deals. But said San Diego Police Chief William Lansdowne darkly, now they will go because they can get drugs. Adding, for a country that's experienced thousands of deaths from warring drug cartels for many years, it defies logic why they would pass a law that will clearly encourage drug use. Well, Chief Lansdowne, Let's explain this to you. The reason that there are drug cartels uh, tearing Mexico apart is because of illegal drug use in the United States. The fact that drugs are hard to get keeps the price up, which makes it more lucrative, which makes it attractive to people that want to make money by dealing such things. Apparently a trend in Latin America to, uh, to call a truce on the war on drugs. 
The former Brazilian President Fernando Cardoso was quoted in the London Observer saying that the war on drugs has failed. Despite decades of overflights, interdictions, spraying, and raids on jungle drug factories, Latin America remains the world's largest exporter of cocaine and marijuana. Said Cardozo, the Commission on Drugs and Democracy, which I co-chaired along with two other former Latin American presidents, has released a report urging the nation's countries to change their methods. Addicts should be treated not as criminals, but as patients cared for in the, in the public health system. And possession of small amounts of drugs for personal use should be decriminalized altogether. We don't mean to imply that drug use is a good thing. Decriminalization must be coupled with robust prevention campaigns to discourage drug abuse. But it's clear that we must end a misguided and counterproductive war that makes the users, rather than the drug lords, the primary victims. Argentina is apparently following this lead. The Supreme Court down there is looking at completely overhauling its drug policies, according to La Nación. The Argentinian Supreme Court ruled recently it was unconstitutional to jail someone for possession of pot for personal use. The government's drawing up a plan to refocus its efforts on the drugs that cause the most harm to society. Alcohol and crack cocaine. Of course, a sour note was sounded by Sergei Sarmiento, writing in Mexico's El Norte, noted that possession of small amounts of drugs for personal use in Mexico has been legal since 1978. What the new law does is quantify the amount of drugs that counts as personal. Under the new rules, if you're in possession of more than five joints or more than half a gram of coke, you're considered a dealer. Said Sarmiento, that's absurd. Is someone with six cigarettes in her purse a tobacco dealer? The law still stipulates tough prison sentences for these so-called dealers, which is hardly a rethink of the war on drugs. All right. Let's take a short break and in segment three see if we can focus on some lighter aspects of life. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Like a bloody fool If you get hot Then you must get cool Bad boys, bad 